welcome back to the Performance Pathways podcast. This week, as promised, we have a great speaker who has a great skill set in terms of field site or pitch site care, emergency care for athletes, as well as running a very successful clinic in Denver, Colorado. So this week we have on Dr. Ben Cowan, uh, runs Action Spine and Sports Medicine in Denver, brings a very diverse skill set and diverse tool set to his treatment and care of athletes. He also travels extensively and has worked his way into that world slowly over the past uh, 19 years, uh, working at a very high level with uh, numerous athletes from a very diverse range of sports, which is no mean feat. It's uh, often easy to gain a reputation on one particular sport, but not always quite so easy to, to cross disciplines as he's done. So uh, Ben is going to take us through his journey from uh, from prior to chiropractic school, what, what took him into chiropractic school, and ultimately how he found his niche as a sports chiropractor. So I hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as I enjoyed making it. This is a slightly longer podcast today, uh, about an hour, and we, we actually could have talked for much longer, but we want to try to make sure that these things are bite-sized for you. Uh, so uh, without further ado, I will bring in Ben. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, good, to, good to be on. Thanks, uh, thanks for inviting me out. Well, I'd be interested to know from you, first of all, is um, how you got into, let's say, sports chiropractic before probably sports chiropractic was really a thing. Uh, you were telling me before you had you'd grown up in Oklahoma, and one of the most common questions, one of the things I'm always interested in is who were your early influences. But interested to know from, from your point of view, how did you get started with all of this? Yeah, so... Kind of my background, um, how I got into sports medicine, I guess in general, was when I was in uh, when I was in high school. I had a I had a career-ending injury. I had uh, shoulder dislocated and actually got stuck in my pec. Uh, as a result, after surgery, they uh, they told me, "Listen, you're never going to be able to really play sports to your full potential anymore." Um, but I still wanted to be around sports, and so I at the time there was a there was a guy that was taping ankles for the football team. Um, that had me out and was like, yeah, why don't you, why don't you help us out a little bit, you know, throw some tape, we'll teach you how to do it. And that's, that's kind of what got me started. And I grew up in a farming community. And so the guy throwing tape was, uh, was, was that special teams coach, I think. Uh, so, you know, we, we didn't even have doctors on the sidelines of games. We, we didn't have an athletic trainer, you know I mean? It, it was, it was a pretty rough get up. So, uh, so I, I, that's, that's how I got started when I went to undergrad, I did my undergraduate at central Oklahoma in uh, in Edmond, Oklahoma. Um, and at that point there was no pathway, there was no education program. And so, uh, my, my undergraduate is in kinesiology and, uh, but there was no emphasis in athletic training. Uh, I was a student, uh, uh I have that, the, the student work program, um, through the, through the federal government that I was working as an athletic trainer. And, and so basically it was hands-on, um, from day one. And, and I, you know, it's, uh, I, I think that that had a lot to do with, uh, why I enjoyed it so much is because we came out the gate swinging. And so it was right out the gate, learning to tape an ankle. And, uh, so you learned in the morning and that afternoon you were strapping ankles. So fun. Was there any early in your career? Was there any, uh, sort of holy crap moments or, or, times where you, you you wondered like this is scary or, or any any early injuries you thought wow well, how am I going to handle this or did you just kind of work your way and sort of muddle your way through it at that point yeah so literally so the first team I worked for um when I was in undergrad so I was uh, 17 at the time um was women's soccer and I'm sitting there and, and I I'm green like I mean I don't know uh elbows from assholes at this point right like I mean we're 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 
uh, no business being out there doing any type of coverage. We're glorified first aiders and uh, had a girl slip into a fence um, on the practicing uh, muddy pitch, um, goes in for a slide tackle, misses the ball, continues to slide through, ends up hitting something, uh, and she has an open fracture. Uh, tib fib open fracture. So starts to scream. I'm kind of, so I run out there, I'm looking and, you know, typical open fracture. There's, uh, I, I get there and, and kind of, that was my oh shit moment, right? You're looking at it and you, you kind of go, okay, well, I have two things I can do here. I can panic or I can just look at it and go, okay, giddy up. Um, here we go. This is what we're going to do. And so I was, uh, I just kind of let, let myself kind of be in the moment and focus on, okay, uh, do the things that you know that need to be done and, you know, uh, stabilize and, and go from there. But I, I think that that's, that's one of those moments where you know right out the gate when you're first in a situation with uh, that, uh, like a first trauma situation that you know that you're either cut for this line of work or you're not, you know. And yeah, that, that for me at 17 was that moment where you went, yeah, all right, this, I'm not going to do anything different. Like this is what I was meant for. That's this really funny that happened to you as, as early as that because I started um, I started studying physiological sciences with my was my undergraduate degree but even even studying even when I went to chiropractic school I was never massively into personally the the field side pitch uh, attendance like I never really wanted to be the first contact guy and obviously I did the emergency uh, procedures uh, emergency care training uh, first aid field side doctor qualifications but I, but I never really felt like that was where I where I wanted to be and where I belonged and it, it was funny to me uh, being I used to get asked to attend field site before I'd done a lot of that training or prep and anytime somebody did anything like a like a separate AC or or a shoulders like I was seen as the guy that knew most about sports but I didn't I didn't really know a lot about acute injuries or trauma that that wasn't my thing so I get kind of wheeled over and I'd, I'd have the same feeling all the time um, and that was what spurred me on to then it's like yeah I, I better formalize my uh my emergency training here and get it done properly. But last year, uh, two years ago, or maybe last year was um, when I was working for, for Puerto Rico and uh, the, uh, the doctor didn't, the team doctor didn't show up for, for one particular match in, in the, in CONCACAF and it was the rules of the competition is that, that you need to have somebody field side that's suitably qualified. So, so again, I put the, I put the vest on and, and I went with the emergency, uh, with the emergency equipment and everything was grand until the very end of the game. And I guess one of the kids from Suriname had just, either not bothered to drink any water or, or who knows. And he's, he's lying at the, lying at the side of the field at the end and he's vomiting and everything's going nasty. I'm like, man, I made it through like 94 minutes and nothing happened. And, and now I'm confronted with this. The ambulance is there, but the paramedics don't want to get involved with it particularly. So, so I'm, I'm sort of talking to that. I say, like, you need to go to hospital. Like you're, you're vomiting, you're sick, you can't stand up. Like you, you need to go. Uh, so I, I turn my back and then they're like, well, who's, who's going to pay for that? I'm like, I'm sure your coverage will pay for it. I'm sure, I'm sure it will get taken care of. An ambulance driver comes out and he's like, well, it's going to be this much money to take you there. And it'll be this much money if you get kept in overnight. And I turn around to, and the team, the team staff has picked the kid up and like carried him away whilst nobody was looking and disappeared. And that was, um, I thought, yeah, this is, this is probably my last day. Uh, so it, it's funny because I didn't have that athletic training background and, and I'm certainly not in my most comfortable in that environment, even though I'm prepared for it. So, so I think there's a definitely a mentality also um, from, from the background that you came from. So you worked as an athletic trainer. What was your pathway that took you into chiropractic? So, so why why chiro school? Why not physical therapy or uh, even osteopathy? Some people might study over here. Why why that particular track? Yeah, so um, I, I've got a weird path. So undergrad at Central Oklahoma, 
Um, after that, I actually got accepted to med school and I went to medical school at Texas Tech in uh, Lubbock, Texas <clears throat> for a year and absolutely hated it. By that time, I had spent four years as an athletic student athletic trainer. Um, along that same time, I, I had started working uh, as a student athletic trainer for the Texas Rangers. And so I was doing some baseball and things like that. So I go to med school and back into the classroom and didn't have any time to actually work. And I was like, man, this sucks. So uh, drop out of medical school, um, go get a master's from Indiana State in post-certification athletic training. And my emphasis was biomechanics, analytical biomechanics. Um, thinking that's what I was going to do, right? Like uh, going to be an athletic trainer, going to make, uh, make a go of this. Uh, end up doing some uh, more professional sports um, just odds and ends things. Uh, got back into baseball, spent, uh, spent another healthy dose in baseball. And then uh, along the way, met, uh, met a woman and uh, got married and realized that, you know, literally everybody that I knew at the time that was an athletic trainer was divorced. And so, uh, so I was like, well, I, you know, I don't want to get divorced. So, uh, you know, I probably need a career change. And so at the time, I, uh, um, I, I was good friends with a guy by the name of Chris Fox, who's down in Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, who was an athletic trainer, uh, formerly an athletic trainer, had gone to chiropractic school. And so we got talking and, you know, life and, and things like that. And he got out of athletic training for the same reason. He was married, uh, wife has having a kid and, and whatnot. And, you know, he wanted the family life. And so uh, as we were talking, you know, I, I was I was pretty frustrated with the medical model in the United States, right? Like it's just, uh, you know, it, it's just not a good system. We, uh, we over-medicate, we, we under-exercise, we, you know, and, and we've created this society where like pain is bad, right? And, and, and pain is not bad. Pain is not inherently bad. Too much of anything, right, uh, is, is bad. Too much pain is bad. But pain in, in, in its inherent form is a good thing. It's a, it's a molding uh, characteristic. And, and so as we were kind of talking about, you know, uh, what would be a good fit. Um, I wanted to use my biomechanical background and that led us to, uh, he was like, man, why don't you go to Cairo school? You know, I mean, you're, you're half of the way there with the biomechanical aspect and the way that you look at the body and the way that you look at human movement. He's like, it, you know, it's, it's all based on movement efficiency, right? It, it's, you know, you're not going to do anything to save the world, but at the same time, the kind of that mentality, <clears throat> he's like, if you can get over the, get over the mentality of, uh, or, or the philosophy of the chiropractor. He's like, you know, you'll, you'll do really well. And, and so that's what took me to chiro school. And, uh, so I have a doctorate in chiropractic from life. That's quite interesting. So I may, I may come back to a certain element of that, but, but what was funny beforehand is you, is you kind of just jumped straight into, Oh yeah. And I happened to work for the Texas Rangers and I did a couple of other bits and pieces. So that, that was quite like, there's probably like three or four really like key, uh, maybe even years of your life there that, that we sort of skipped over there into directly into Texas Rangers. And, and I'm pretty certain people don't just fall into working with the Texas Rangers. So maybe you could just expand and maybe take us through like how that transpired. How did you end up working there in, in that position, in that position, that capacity? Yeah. So I had a buddy uh, whose mom was uh, working the institution and, or at the, at the team and, um, so I was, uh, I was a grunt, like I was student athletic trainer. So, uh, you know, I wasn't certified at the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, a lot of it was, uh, you know, I was there to pick up towels and pick up tape ins and, you know, uh, stuff like that, you know, dirty laundry. So, uh, that's, yeah, which I think probably the majority of people, that's where we get started, right? Like you get started, 
you know, out of necessity, right? Which is, you know, somebody, uh, you know, they they need somebody to volunteer and, and do all those other things. And, and I, I, it's always funny when I, people ask me like, you know, Oh, I want to do what you do. And I'm like, no, you don't like, <laughs> you know, like, um, you, you see the cool stuff, right? Uh, you get to, you get to watch games pitch side. Right. And I'm like, listen, man, like, it, don't get me wrong. I have the best job in the world. And, and so to those students that are listening to this, I, I don't want to dissuade you by any means. Uh, I will tell you two things that, that you need to remember. One, uh, there's a lot of grunt work. Uh, you're going to be picking up a lot of, a lot of towels and a lot of tape. And, and I still, and I've been doing this 20 years. Uh, I'm still looking and picking up uh, empty water bottles and, you know, like uh, I, uh, I leave for Hong Kong in a couple of weeks and, you know, that's, that's going to be, 10 days of the longest days of my life where, you know, you just grind and a lot of it is not putting hands on patients. It's doing whatever it takes to, to ensure success. And that may be treating that may be picking up trash. Um, uh, so you need to be prepared for that. And then the, the other thing is, uh, that, that I always tell everybody is be prepared to be ruined. Right. Uh, and I'm sure Nikki, you can, you can, uh, attest to this, right. Uh, you'll never watch games the same way. Oh Yeah. You, you just so if you love the sport uh for me baseball um don't go work for a baseball team uh because uh you'll never look at baseball the same way sitting in the stands is uh is just so anticlimactic whenever you see a game from the sidelines or from uh you know there is no greater feeling than standing on a sideline and watching a game uh, in front of 80,000 people or, you know, uh, the Olympic games where you're watching the gold medal get handed out, you know, from a hundred meters in front of you, like it, it just, you're ruined. Like it, it's, uh, you'll never look at sport the same way. And it's both a blessing and a curse, right? Because it's, man, it's so addictive. Uh, but on the other side, like when you watch it on TV, you're like, eh. So you know, so you know what's really funny. It's like laterally, especially in the last couple of years when I've been, you know, been able to, the, the, I guess the good thing you and you know, people who, who work in sports is sometimes you, you can get nice tickets. And I, I find myself, especially even when I go with my wife and she's enjoying the atmosphere and maybe, maybe enjoying it like an IPA or so I'll be enjoying the IPA. She'll be enjoying the atmosphere. And uh, I, I've started to actually look at the bench and look at the medical staff. So when somebody falls down, I'm looking over to them to see how they're responding to think, Oh, I wonder if he's concerned about that. I would be concerned about that. I'm thinking this, I'm thinking that, uh, especially because you know some of the guys and you're like, oh crap, I wouldn't be like, oh man. No, you're, you're exactly right. You know, I mean, you just, you never, and even when you're watching the game, right? So even if, when there's not uh, an injury, right? Uh, because I do the same thing. I'm watching a game and uh, uh, I'm, I'm constantly like, dude, why are you moving the camera? Like we haven't even evaluated the guy yet. Like at least let me see. And, um, but even when I'm watching the game, like I don't watch it for, oh, that was an amazing pass. Or, oh, did you see that run play? I was like, no, I was focused on that. You know, uh, if we're talking American football, I was focused on that right guard that looked like he might've gotten his ankle rolled up or, you know, like, and, and so like, I just watch things from a very different perspective these days. And, uh, I'm, I'm constantly scanning for worst case scenario because unfortunately, um, I've had a worst case scenario and it's not something that, uh, many people know about my career, but I've, I've had a, uh, uh, I've had a case where things went wrong. Um, and, uh, a patient is now, or an athlete is now a pair, uh, quadriplegic. Um, 
So I think once you have one of those moments, you will never, never watch the game the same way. You're constantly going, when's that next moment? You know, when's that next athlete not standing up? So without, without probably going to the details of that particular incident, what I'd be interested to know is how did you personally and professionally recover from that incident? What, what did you go through there? Yeah, I'm more than happy to talk about the about the incident. I mean, it's uh, I, I think that it's something that needs to be talked about, especially in the healthcare provider uh, um, profession, uh, especially if you're planning on going into this this field, right? Because the chances are, if you work in this uh, at this level in contact sports, collision sports, combat sports, whatever it is, there will be a day uh, when you have an athlete that doesn't get up. Um, in my case, it was, uh, the spring of, uh, what was it? Spring of 20, 2010. Yeah. Somewhere around there. No, it was earlier than that. Uh, 2005, I think. And it was a, uh, it was an athlete. Uh, I was covering a rugby tournament there. Uh, it was a rugby tournament in South Florida. Um, my team, uh, life university's rugby team was actually warming up. And so I had my back to the pitch, uh, and there was a uh, there was a there was a game going on. It was a big festival um, game going on, and uh, I'm watching my boys warm up. Um, no no issue going on, and I hear uh, somebody yell my name, and I'm going, "That's weird!" Like all my athletes are in front of me, and I turn around and I see a good friend of mine. Uh, uh, she's actually still very close to me to this day. Her name's Ashley Lincorn. Ashley is uh, standing over a body that is face down in the middle of the pitch um, and everybody else is kind of standing around them. So I uh, immediately sprint out to her. Um, I, I provide inline uh, stabilization, uh, uh, C-spine uh, stabilization. Um, and as we are going through this case, this guy starts to uh, go into respiratory distress. And so we, uh, about that time we had another doc that was out at the pitch watching his kids play and he was doing some checking uh, and kind of going through, uh, uh, neurological, uh, just a real quick neurological symptom, uh, check and none of his, uh, reflexes were popping. And so, uh, uh, he had zero activity. Um, and so now we've got this guy that we know has got a brainstem injury, uh, who's struggling breathing, but at the same time, he's, telling me, oh, I can get up, I can get up. So he's trying to move around and end up finally getting him rolled over. And I finally explained to the man, like, listen, you've had an injury and I really need you to calm the fuck down. Like it, the, the best thing you can do right now is just shut the fuck up and listen. Um, and that's exactly how I worded it. Uh, and he kind of looked at me cause he's, he's on his back now. He kind of looks in my eyes and he goes, okay, doc. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, EMTs get there, we get him boarded, get him off site. Um, and, uh, uh, he goes straight into surgery and, uh, unfortunately didn't, uh, didn't have the outcome we were hoping for. Um, he, he's alive, uh, which is good. Um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've had athletes that, uh, you know, I've had, uh, two other scenarios that, uh, athletes that, uh, um, they ended up surviving, but, uh, they did have a period where they were deceased on us and, uh, the EMTs were able to bring them back. And so, you know, I always tell that story and, and put the emphasis on, you know, as much as you want to be in this sport, as much as you want to be in this world, you need to be prepared, uh, 
that regardless of your level of expertise, Cairo, DPT, athletic trainer, MD, DO, I don't care. Uh, there will come a time where you're covering sports and something like that can go wrong. You know, I mean, you've covered sports, Nikki, all over the world, right? Like, you know, it's not like the NFL where, you know, I'm sure when you were covering sports in Puerto Rico, right, where you have, you know, three paramedics and on the side, each sideline is, you know, six MDs and a neuropsychologist and, a, you know, you've got this army of doctors. And so you as this lowly Cairo, you're there to pop bones and, you know, get out of the way, right? Like, yeah, we, 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 we did not have that level of right. resource in Puerto Rico. So like <laughs> when you, when you talk about cases like that, like, you know, you need to be prepared that there will come a time where nobody cares what the initials are behind your name, your doc. And as Dr. Dr. Kirk, like, this is your job. You own the situation and come hell or high water, you're responsible for the, the, the health and well-being of that person. And, and, uh, and it's not to be taken lightly, right? Um, with that said, it takes a certain breed of cat to do it. Um, and so if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably already realized that you're the kind of person that can manage those scenarios. And so – now just be ready. They may come. You know what, what springs to mind there is um, is, is that case of um, Joseph Malumbo that that was had cardiac arrest at Tottenham Hotspur uh, playing. I think he was playing for Bolton at the time a few years back, and actually took a, a cardiovascular doctor. Uh, he was actually on a BGSM podcast quite recently, just talking about the experience to to actually enter the field of play. I think he was just there as a spectator enjoying the game, and and he came on and, and they performed um, CPR on him for quite an extended period of time. But what that actually did was it, it really brought focus into pre-match preparation. Why were some people, I mean, who knows, maybe it's maybe it's just good fortune, right people, right time, different circumstances. But but why was that such a common occurrence in, in football, for example? And why were outcomes so dramatically different depending upon the depending upon the case? And and one of the things that was highlighted there was was the pre-game preparation. This, the rehearsal, the practice, and the steps—the the things that people go through before they even step out there with their medical bag—and all of that, doing those basic things consistently well and being prepared for that worst-case scenario—and you, you could still get a bad outcome. I mean, sometimes bad things happen. It, it just just is what it is. You also want to be able to say, like, I did everything that I could possibly do in my power to help the situation. And then even then, sometimes it's not—it's not going to be quite there. But yeah, that's. That's uh, that's interesting. So did, did that then change? Did you did you always have a very fixed, whether it was just yourself, or whether you're working with a big integrated team, do you have a certain system or certain, let's say, rituals that you follow prior to prior to games, prior to practices? 100% always. Um, you know, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's always pretty much the same, you know, when I even even now, so I, I don't do on on field care anymore. And so I, I've been off the pitch for for quite some time. But even now, I find myself, you know, when I leave for Hong Kong in a couple of weeks, um, so I, I've got two weeks into Hong Kong. I've already started going through my med bag and going, okay, what do I need to reorder? What do I need to, yeah, and, and I've got my list and it's just very, <coughs> it's very specific. And my list changes, uh, has changed uh, just about every year as, you know, technology changes and, <coughs> goodness, excuse me, uh, and, you know, my, my focus has changed. But I've always found myself always having emergency supplies in the bag. 
And when I get to a pitch, one of the first things that I'm always aware of is I I just, I, and it's just ingrained into me. I look around and I go, okay, where, where is EMT? Where, which direction is that, uh, is that uh, spine board coming from, right? Where is medical set up? What happens if we're in the far corner? Like all these things. And, And I don't even work on teams anymore, right? I'm, I'm there as part of the, uh, as part of referee care. And then also with, uh, with the event itself. But I, I think one thing that I, I've started to see, especially within rugby and rugby sevens, um, and you'll see this around the, around the world at this point is, is they practice before every day. And so a three day tournament they'll do. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday tournament, Thursday that everybody will get together and they'll practice and then we'll go through a big in service. Friday morning before games get started, we're spine boarding on the sideline and we're reviewing Saturday morning, same routine, Sunday morning, same routine. Um, and it's just that, you know, perfect practice breeds perfection, right? Like there are very few times where you need to be perfect, right? Uh, and I think we throw that word around too often, but in spinal cord injuries, you need to be perfect. There's just zero room for error. And so perfect practice breeds perfection. Um, and so we practice it often. Um, and I, I think that I, with the hopes that we never have to do it. Unfortunately, we see it a lot. I, I think, uh, I don't remember the exact numbers on the Las Vegas tournament, uh, but we saw an abnormally high number of spine boards in Vegas and every doctor there, every athletic trainer there spine boarded somebody. And so, you know, nobody's immune. I, I saw chiros that were providing inline stabilization. Uh, it, you know, it, it's just, you gotta know. So, so, so that being said, Ben, where, where did you acquire these skills? What, what was your, I don't want to say academic pathway because it's, but what, what was your, what was your training? What was your preparation? Your, let's say your formal preparation and training to, to feel like you were, you were competent and able to perform in, in that environment. There's the nuts and bolts of the specifics. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I was fortunate in, with my undergrad degree actually is where it all got started. Uh, my, my mentor and, and very good friend, Jeff McKibben was in charge of the program there. And McKibbo made sure that, uh, at the beginning of every season, you know, in August, the athletic trainers would come in early, uh, about a week early. And we all would go through our CPR and get re-upped on our CPR certification. And, you know, all of, all of those things, restock the training room, making sure everything, uh, meticulous detail, Everything was accounted for, and then we would spend an entire day spine boarding um, on different facilities. And so we would go down onto the football field and spine board. We would go to the basketball court and spine board. We would, you know, go to the upstairs area where the indoor track was and spine board. And so, like, you know, we we were so familiar with it, even as a seventeen year old kid. Like, it was just it it became second nature. And so, like, I was very blessed to have somebody like Jeff that saw the value at right out the gate. And as a result, we, you know, uh, we didn't have a choice. Like it, it was just, this is the way it's going to be done. Um, and, and yeah, I'll, I can never thank him enough because, you know, um, fortunately I never spine boarded when I was an undergrad, but since, uh, actually I, the first time I spine boarded was uh, after I was already finished with my master's. Um, and, and so like, I, you know, I already, by that point I'd had, you know, six years of education underneath my belt before I even had to use that, that particular skill set. thank God. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that there's any, uh, any substitute for just, you know, early and often, right. 
Brilliant. Yeah. And that's, um, that's funny. That's really the foundation of high performance is, is preparation. So let me, uh, on the same track, but maybe slightly different because you're not, uh, you're not just a sideline doctor. I mean, you're a highly skilled, let's say a technician, maybe that's, that's fair to say a clinician. So, so, so talk to me a little bit about, about the, the upskilling of your clinical abilities. Uh, take me from, from maybe through Cairo school uh, up to the, up to the, up to the present day. What's been, what's moved the needle for you the most? I, I, oh man, that's a tough one. So I, I think that a lot of times when we talk about what did or didn't move the needle, I think everything moves the needle uh, in its own right, right? When you talk about like soft tissue mobility, right? Um, uh, you, you talk about kinesio tape, right? That, you know, that used to be such a big rage. And, and now that we kind of understand it a little bit more, maybe it's not as good as what we thought it was, right? Maybe it's not doing everything that it's supposed that we thought it was doing, you know, uh, soft tissue mobilization, whether it was Graston or Factor or any uh, IASCM uh, technique, like, it's an amazing technique, but is it really doing everything that you're supposed to be doing? And so I, I think that everything kind of evolves in its own mindset. And, and so like, uh, dry needling, same thing, right? Uh, you know, love the technique, I, I dry needle all the time. Um, I find myself maybe not dry needling as much, uh, the more uh, pain science that I'm studying. And so um, I, I think that all those techniques, uh, cupping, right, all those things, uh, you could all come back to time and a place, right? Um, and I, I think that that's really kind of been the thing that, that if you were to say what's really defined your treatment strategy, it's been able to, to better define that as I've gotten older. Uh, you know, I, I think that my overall skill set is fairly close to the same that I was when I was 17, right? Like here's some tape, uh, you know, here's, uh, here's some scrapey tools, uh, or, or some soft tissue work, whether it's with your hand or a blade or whatever it is, right? Here's, uh, here's some manual therapy. Here's some PNF. Here's some PIR. Here's some, you know, some static stretching. When you get back down to it, it's all pretty much the same, right? Like I, I think what differs is, uh, where does it fit in your overall treatment strategy, right? And, and so, you know, sharp sensation, uh, whether it's from a needle stick or, you know, uh, shocking the shit out of somebody with Russian stem, right? Like, what are you trying to achieve? And so I, I think that they all have their place. I, I think that really what it comes down to is that for me, as I've studied more and learned more, I can well, I can better define when weird to use certain technique and, and the why, why am I doing this? Because I, <clears throat> I had it, I had it told to me from one of my professors in, in graduate school. He used to say uh, that, you know, undergrad is for the how, right? Here's, you're going to learn how you're not supposed to ask any questions, just do it this way, right? Grad school is when you start to learn why, well, why am I doing this? Why, why am I setting it up? And then you spend the rest of your life trying to recover from the why, right? And so like, I, but I think that's it, right? Like, I, I think the older we get, the more we start questioning, well, why am I using inch and a half J and J to strap an ankle? Like, what's the benefit? And then that starts to go on that path of, well, maybe I don't need to limit the whole ankle. And that puts you onto a biomechanical tape and that directs you to dynamic tape. Um, but does that mean that inch and a half J and J doesn't still serve a purpose? I would be hard pressed to find an athletic trainer that doesn't throw some type of J and J, right? Um, and so I, I think a lot of it has been the more I learn, the more I continue to ask why. And what's been a, a needle mover for me has been able to better define the space and the time to which I need to use those techniques. I think it's a really good answer. So what was 
what was funny with it, I mean, not the pain science is actually a new concept. It's just become a popular, a more popular concept of late, I think. And there is some of the other information which has come out in, you know, even chiropractic neurology or, or the, the FNOR model, other bits and pieces, which you've, uh, which have definitely taken my interest lately. And you, you think of yourself, man, like if I'd known this stuff earlier and, and actually it was Studholm pointed out to me, he's like, you know, Nick, this stuff didn't exist when we were at college. So there's no way you, you couldn't have even known that you didn't know it. And that's um, sometimes I think that's also the, the mark of a good, good practitioner, somebody that does ask those types of questions as you begin to question yourself. And for me, I mean, for me personally, it pisses me off and that sort of motivates me. It's like, oh, I can't accept that I don't know this and there's people that know it better than me. So, so I need to understand this. <laughs> I would challenge that also to say, even if this type of information existed, right? Uh, you think back over over the years uh, of education, whether it was classroom related or, or experience education, right? Would you would you have done it differently? Like, I mean, would you have jumped straight to the pain model? You know, I, I think if we had started there, then we would have lost so much because of uh, of the experience that it took to get to us to really look at the nerve and go. Timeout. Let's talk about this peripheral nerve. Because if you just look at the nerve, I think you lose the big picture of, you know, in our background, right? You think about the biomechanical aspect and you think about the soft tissue aspect and you throw in the fascial aspect and all these other things, right? Um, I think that, yes, the nerve and, and dealing with the peripheral nerve is definitely a, a missing piece. But I, I think that, and when I do with, you know, chiropractic neurologists and things like that, that don't have the soft tissue background that, you know, that Nick has, or you have, or myself or Adam Wolf or, or some of those other people, right? Like uh, I often look at that and I go, you can't just focus on the nerve. And I, I think if we had jumped to the nerve first, we wouldn't have focused on the mechanics first. Uh, and then when addressing the mechanics didn't work, we looked at the soft tissue. And when that didn't work, we looked at the fashion. When that didn't work, we looked at the nerve, right? So I think that the that that progression needs to happen. Um, and so, yeah, I, I still think that it, it's uh, it, it's definitely one of those that you can't just get tunnel vision and go, oh, it's the nerve, right? Like don't chase the pain or, or whatever it is. Like that's a good aspect, but you can't forget that we deal in human performance, right? The, the body is one big machine, right? It's no different than the car that you drive. Uh, it, it, you know, it requires certain levels of tune-up, if you will. Um, what needs to be tuned up, man, I don't know, but you can't just have an electrician on your staff um, and think that the car is going to be running at, at optimum, right? When you're dealing with a, with, a, with a race car, right? Which is what we deal with. On, on, that, on that theme, Ben, can I, can I ask you, uh, and, and this actually came from a, from a chiropractic student that's very interested in sports medicine, it's not, uh, although I'm interested as well. Uh, you sort of alluded there that you see a place for, you use the, use the analogy maintenance, which, which is obviously probably the most common chiropractic analogy ever, maybe. So obviously you're, you're treating, I mean, you just told me before we came on, you, you've got a, a pretty special interesting case that came into your office, uh, which I would probably say falls into the acute category of injuries. Uh, but you obviously see a place for, for active treatment. You obviously see a place for, uh, let's say, tune-up or priming or, or optimization. Uh, do you want to just maybe talk a little bit to that? Sure, absolutely. So I definitely fall outside of the traditional chiro uh, care plan mentality, right? Um, <clears throat> most of what I deal with and, and still to this day, even with the FNOR treatment, uh, and, and education and things like that, 99% uh, of my business is acute care. 
Uh, most of my clinic is built around uh, UFC, MMA, uh, rugby. Oh, man, you name it, it's coming through. Usually the triathletes that are coming through are an acute injury. Hey, I tore a hamstring. Hey, I you know fell off my bike, whatever it may be. And so I, I deal in mostly acute care. And, and what I tell all of our athletes is <clears throat> at the end of the day, my job as a mechanic is to fix things, right? Yeah, I want to make sure that uh, that they're as efficient as possible. But in the world that we play in, at the level that we play in, it's not a matter of if things break, it's when. And so uh, that's just an area that I tend to focus in. Um, we tend to fix it. And when they decide to break it, come back and we'll fix it again um, with the expectation that I don't set care plans. So we work week by week in the clinic because I just, I want to know how the body's going to respond. And at the end of the day, I want you out of my office in the fastest amount of time because the research shows the quicker you get them back to activity, uh, the, the better it is. Right. And so like my job is to, to get them back to activity as quickly as I can get them back to activity. So you sound like you're more milestone based than the timeframe based, which is probably about the right place to be. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. You know, and I, I love to use the example. And when I taught at uh, the chiropractic school, um, I would always give this example to my class. <clears throat> so you have a, you have a female, uh, 65 year old female, um, OA in both knees, right? Um, bilateral, uh, severe degenerative disease, right? Comes to you and say, you run through your eval, you shoot your x-rays or whatever it is that you do for Cairo, which by the way, I don't shoot x-rays in my clinic, um, unless it is for, uh, pathological reasons, making sure that they don't have a fracture, <clears throat> which we actually refer out for that. Uh, but, uh, so you, you've got these x-rays and you're looking at it. And, and the first question I always ask my athlete is, uh, what does success look like to you? And, and, and if you're not asking that question, I, I would really, really challenge you to start asking that. Um, because most of the time, what they're going to tell you is, you know, I want to be able to do whatever. In this particular case, I, I would use, I would say this woman, you know, she wants to be able to dance with her husband, right? Uh, she's got severe OA. <clears throat> and, and so we're going to, that's what she wants. She wants to be able to dance with her husband. If at the end of your treatment plan, uh, she has the most beautiful spine and you've done everything correct and, and, and you followed protocol to a T and as everything's going, uh, you, you have laid down the best treatment possible and, and you know in your heart of hearts, uh, it was as good as good gets. And then you ask her, you know, how did it go? And she goes, well, I still can't dance with my husband. Were you successful? Like, Got you. Exactly. And, and so like. I, that's where I struggle with, oh, well, let's measure spinal degrees and all these things. Like at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because like if you knew how many UFC fighters fight with torn ACLs or, uh, how many soccer players are running around without, uh, ATFLs in their ankle, like, you know, uh, or torn labrums in their hips or shoulders or things like that, like structure, structure, don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, we care about function, right? Those athletes do what it takes to perform because it's a paycheck. But for some, it's performance is that's their happy place. That's, that's what makes life livable. And so if you're not caring about the function and you're only caring about the structure and making sure that everything is tippy top, like, I don't know, man, I, I, I feel personally that you're, that you're doing a disservice to your patient because they don't care what their spine looks like on x-ray. They care that they can dance with their husband into the 70s. So uh, just um, it, quite an interesting analogy. I, I heard this on another 
podcast is um, is is even the, the verb perform to to carry out, accomplish, or or fulfill a task or a function. It doesn't say anything about doing it perfectly. And and I always think in, in sport, you, you're working with people who are compromised structurally. Uh, they are injured, and our job, I see it, is to actually get them out there so they can perform the task that they have to do. Uh, and our job is really to support them in doing that. It's got really, in the end, very little in season time, in game time. It's about, it's about winning that game, getting them out there so they can they can be available. And it's a very different outlook to saying, oh, well, um, I, I work in high performance. It sounds very, very glamorous. And, and it's really not. It's like really the, it's the dirty work behind the scenes to help these guys get out to do what they're supposed to be doing properly. And uh, I, I think that that for me was a, was a really important message. So maybe at a certain point, you can enjoy a, their moment when they get to do what they want to do. That, that point of perfection that I never would have been able to accomplish as an athlete because I just wasn't there. I, was, I wasn't good enough. But you can still get a lot of satisfaction out of maybe even just having that little grain of sand in, in the in somebody else's moment, like you were talking about, about the gold medal, um, the home run. Uh, and I, I think that's, for me, probably the biggest motivator more than anything else. Not the money. Uh, that's, a, that's a little. Yeah, hopefully it's not money. It's so. <laughs> a little. All, all of you listening that think that you're going to get rich on this, yeah, hate, hate to hate to burst that bubble. Tie, tie things up, Ben. So, uh, again, just bear in mind that probably we have we have people that maybe, well, be many people obviously haven't, haven't been in even an office that maybe functions like yours or might be a different experience. So, uh, hard thing to answer when you've been through some of this. But what, what doesn't, if there is such a thing, what would an office visit look like if I presented to you and I said, oh, you know, Ben, I'm a 40-year-old decrepit footballer that uh, thinks he's better than he is and my knee hurts and I think about a badly sprained ankle. What, what process am I going to go through with you and and, and generally what, what's your approach going to be? Yeah, so, um, I mean, in, in typical clinical fashion, um, you're going to – you're the first thing, uh, which in my opinion is most important, you're sitting down and taking the history, right, and uh, tell me about yourself and – uh, you know, that, that, to me, that ta- that should take you about 20 minutes, <clears throat> if not longer. Um, because you need to, you need to get to know your athlete, right. Um, and not just, okay, tell me about your surgeries and, you know, do you wear contacts or glasses and, you know, have you ever used, uh, illicit drugs or, you know, how often do you drink? How often do you smoke? Like, I mean, yeah, th- that stuff's important. Right. But like, find out what makes them tick, right? Like, are, are they a type A person? Are, are they just nervous? Right. Are they looking around and going, do they check in their watch and going, okay, if that's so, you've got a no-nonsense guy on your, your hands. Like you manage that patient different. So you, you gotta be able to read your your athlete and you gotta be able to know like what's their mindset? Like where are they at? Are they freaking out? Are they the are they the guy or girl that's, you know, three days from their first ever Iron Man and they're feeling this funky weird pain and you know, my pet's heads are falling off and like that type of like freaking out. Um, because you manage that patient differently and your treatment strategy should be different, right? You're not going to, you're not going to dry needle the shit out of somebody that's about to have an emotional crisis in your office, right? Because then you for sure are going to have somebody crying in your office. Um, and, and so like, uh, spend that 20 minutes to get to know them. What makes them tick? What, you know, do they have family? Do they, you know, when, when they talk about, you know, getting close to retirement, are they lighting up or are they freaking out? Like all those things, because, our care plan, uh, our, our care in general is, yeah, it, it's, it's physical. Yeah. You're going to put hands on patients 
But a lot of it is psychological. You, you got to be able to convince them that what you're doing is for their best interest and it really will help. So after, after we do that eval, we're, we're running through and we're, we're going to test and, and trying to come up with a metric that, that can show them visible results, whether it's range of motion, whether it's a squat assessment, whether it's, you know, there's all these different things. Um, and, and a lot of times I think this is where most new healthcare practitioners get tied up uh, with the protocol, right? Um, we, yes, we do SFMA, we do the FMS uh, we do squat assessments. We can do some gait analysis. Um, all those things are good. Um, we tend to take bits and pieces from each one. And, and the reason for that is that <clears throat> I need something that can show them market improvement. And I don't need to show them, oh, yeah, well, this range of motion never changed. Good on you. Like, and so they need visible, tangible. The treatment may have been intense. It may have been even a little painful. But wow, look at the range of motion of that hip. Uh, yeah, can I can I ask what you're using to record that? Are you are you videoing? Do you um, have any special equipment? Um, yeah, sometimes. Uh, sometimes we'll use Spark Motion um, when we're doing gait analysis and things like that. Um, a lot of times, uh, what a lot of times what I'm doing is uh, in the moment, and so we're looking at range of motion, and so we'll look at internal external rotation of the hip, <clears throat> and then I'll, I'll tell them, all right, I need you to look at this range. Um, and, and tell me what you think. And they're like, oh, yeah, I, I don't have nearly the internal rotation. And then I'll go in and I'll needle pectineus, uh, and then I'll immediately turn around and, and retest. And so that they're visually, they're seeing, um, seeing that they go, oh, wow, yeah, okay. And, and so we tend to, uh, I don't tend to videotape as much um, because I tend to want to retest immediately after we treat. And, and, and so... Uh, the value there is, okay, yeah, that's a little stiff. Okay, let me bend over and touch your toes or let me do a deep squat. Yeah, I, I don't really have that. It's starting to hurt my low back. Okay, let me needle multifidus and then you stand up. Oh, wow, uh, look at that change. And, and so I don't tend to record as much. Uh, I probably could do a better job there. Um, but a lot of that is because I, I like to do those results-oriented based things. And so we're testing right before we treat and then immediately after. And I just don't have time to record it. I understand. It's a, it's a lonely furrow. What I, what I think is, is funny is, um, and this is not just a chiropractic thing, but with the advent of biomechanic labs and technology and the investments a lot of big universities are making, but then you come out of that into solo practice and, and like who's got the money to put in a biomech lab and actually have all of that stuff, let alone analyze it and be an expert in all of those different different realms. Um, it's, it's sort of a paradox and you don't really need it i mean and that's exactly what i would uh i would i would i always challenge right uh, and we we've had this issue and, it, and it's not just going to a clinic we've seen it with uh, ngbs with national governing bodies and uh international governing bodies and all these other things right and we i always ask the point like what's the point right are we collecting data to collect data or is it clinical clinically relevant you know if, if we're looking and we're going okay yeah you're biomechanically you know, on your run analysis, we're seeing a, you know, a three to five degree shift in, you know, uh, from right to left, left to right, uh, asymmetry. I would, I would look at that and I go, okay, but so what? Right. And, and not to be a jerk about it. I, I, I want, it's human performance. And you already touched on it uh, earlier when you said like, <clears throat> we don't deal with perfect bodies, right? Like all these guys and girls are going out there with some level of, you know, 
fucked upness, you know, if you were to put it in, right? Like they've all got something materially wrong with them and, and a structural limitation of matter that we're just not going to overcome. And so why are we collecting data? And if it's clinically relevant, then I'm all for it. But if, it, if it's not going to change the treatment plan, if it's not going to influence how this person truly performs, because at the end of the day, the elite level athlete, that's really all they care about, right? Like, I mean, you covered footy for how many years now? Like, uh, how many athletes? Let's just say a, let's just say a bunch. Yeah. So, like, how many, how many times did the athlete care about their a- ankle range of motion? Like, how many, uh, Doc, did my range of motion change? No, they, they ask, Doc, can I go? Hey, can I play this? Weekend? Hey, can I, can I go practice? That's all they care about. Like, they don't, well, I mean, you saw a five degree change in range of motion. Okay. So, what? Can I go practice? I don't know. It, it's the same with like, you know, we, I, I presented a couple of weeks ago at the International Sports Medicine Symposium uh, in Las Vegas. Um, and there was, a, there was a really cool talk on uh, diagnostic musculoskeletal ultrasound, which we do in our office. And uh, one of the guys was laughing. He was like, you know, if you're going to do this, he's like, do not use it on track athletes. He's like, because you see this little bitty tear in a hamstring uh, of, a, of a trackie. And he's like, and next thing you know, they're asking for a scan every day to go, well, how much did it heal? And he's going... You know, sometimes data can hurt more than it can help. Now, if you have a tear, it's good to know. But did that, you know, five millimeter tear, is that going to keep that that athlete from running at uh, nationals next weekend? No, you, right? Like, And it, it's that adage as well, treat treat the person, not the scan. No, that's that you're 100% right. And you've seen athletes that have done things that, that – I, I can guarantee you, you can probably think of at least a dozen cases where you've looked at an x-ray, you've looked at an MRI, uh, and you're going, no fucking way. Like, but then they go out and play, and they score three goals, and you just throw your hands up and go, I give up. Like, you know, At the end of the day, the, the human body is fascinating. And as much as we know about science and sports science and you know, what we think should be going on, you know, there's a reason we still call it practicing medicine, right? Like it's, we don't know, like people do crazy things that we just go, yeah, I mean, against all my better judgment, I would have never guessed that would have worked. And yet they're out there just crushing it because what did they care about? They care that, Hey, Dr. Kirk said that I can go out and I can play this weekend. So I'm going to do it. And they go out and they have a rock star day and they PR or yeah, I mean that's in the end what it's all about. So Luke, let's um let's let's start to close things out here, Ben, because I, I said this was going to be like a 20, 30 minute thing and that's just I've just my point of view, I've really enjoyed listening to to some of the context and the background. My pleasure. I can get a little long winded. My apologies. <laughs> no, not not at all. I'm 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 happy. I I would have requested sixty minutes, I thought I could have got it. But let's 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 close out. So what's um what's coming up next for yourself? I know you're you're off on another trip in two weeks. Yeah. So I'll, uh, my, my goal right now is to oversee everything through the Tokyo Olympic Games uh, for Rugby Sevens. And so uh, I've got Hong Kong end of, uh, end of this month, and then I've still got uh, London, Paris. Uh, I've got to go to Canada for another event. And then World Cup. This is a World Cup year, so we've got World Cup, uh, Rugby World Cup in uh, uh, San Francisco this year for Sevens. Um, and so I'll be heavily involved with all of that. And then uh, I'm actually working with a, uh, with a company right now um, helping to develop some human performance stuff. Um, and, and it's dealing with the same stuff we talked about, right? Like, uh, you know, we can't do anything about structure, right? Like you tore your ACL, you tore your ACL. Does that mean that you can't perform? 
maybe, but, uh, you know, we, we've come up with some pretty cool stuff, uh, dealing with the treatment of pain and, and human performance based on those things, um, that we're hoping to have out within the next 30 days. Um, and so, uh, doing some, some really cool consulting work with them. And, uh, so yeah, that, that's kind of, that's, that's the, that's the big carrot in my life right now. So where can we find more about, about yourself, Ben? I know you're not probably doing as much teaching as, as you have done because you're going to be traveling like a, like a crazy person. So my, my website is uh, Action Spine and Sports Medicine. It is in Denver, Colorado. It's actionspinedenver.com. And uh, if you want to get a hold of me directly, uh, best way is my email. It's just ben at actionspinedenver. And, you know, I mean, and this is definitely one of those things that you know, I was so excited to be able to do because you know, I – I'm excited to see what the next wave of of doctor that comes through. You know, I, I mean, I, I think that that those of you listening to this out there right now, you are the ones that are, you know, you're the future of healthcare, and the the things that you're going to to have at your disposal, I, I just like it's mind boggling the the technology. And so, if you ever have questions about what I'm doing or uh, the work that I'm involved in. Or, or questions about anything, uh, feel free to hit me up. I'm more than happy to answer. And uh, uh, and the the company that I'm I'm I'll be doing some work with. If it's something that interests you, we're actually uh, I'm actually doing some cannabis research right now, looking at uh, CBD and CBG CBN uh, on human performance. As that just came off the uh, uh, banned substance list by uh, the World Anti Doping Agency, and so we're looking at how those types of uh, that endocannabinoid system uh, affects human performance, and, and I think that that's really the next wave of pharmacology in the in the world of of human performance. And so, uh, uh, the company CBX Sciences uh, and I are are teaming up, and yeah, we're going to be turning out some pretty crazy cool stuff here shortly. So, if you have questions on that, definitely hit us up. Awesome, Ben. Well, look from from my point of view, uh, thanks so much for being my my first interviewee on uh, on this podcast. So thanks again for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I greatly appreciate it. So thank you for listening to this Pathways to Performance podcast. We hope that you find this episode engaging and as interesting as we did. Join us next time as we continue to explore the journeys of other high performance practitioners in elite sport.